0: Yahoo Sports has been a leader in fantasy sports for nearly two decades, and it's great to see that they recently introduced Fair Play for Daily Fantasy. Yahoo is helping to level the playing field for sports fans with strict contest entry limits and veteran labels for highly experienced players, so you know who you're playing against. Yahoo Sports is offering our listeners a special offer. Go to the Yahoo Fantasy app or visit yahoo.com slash daily fantasy and use promo code ringer, that's R-I-N-G-E-R, with your next deposit to receive a one-time $50 deposit that is earned over time as you play. Plus, first-time depositors will receive a $10 credit to enter contests. So remember, that's promo code RINGER on Yahoo Sports Daily Fantasy. And before we get started, I also wanted to mention that the Ringer now has merch. Go to bit.ly.com slash ringermerch where you can find shirts and hoodies. A portion of the proceeds from each purchase will benefit Charity Water, a nonprofit organization that provides clean and safe drinking water to people in developing nations. Again, go now to bit.ly.com slash ringermerch. Yeah. Welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh, and I'm a staff writer for TheRinger.com. I'm joined by fellow Ringer writer, Michael Bauman. Hello, Michael. Hello. Way back on the first episode of this podcast, our boss, Bill Simmons, alluded to some mystery man who would be coming on to co-host the show at some point in the future, and I suppose he meant me. So I am the podcaster that was promised, and now I've gotten my first Game of Thrones reference out of the way in the first 20 seconds of my career at The Ringer, which I think was in my contract somewhere. Like Michael, I am a former writer for Grantland and baseball prospectus so we've known each other and worked together for a while and i've really enjoyed what you and mal and everyone else have done for the first 10 episodes so thanks for letting me tag in
1: yeah we've been waiting for the ringer to make that big trade deadline acquisition <laughs> and you are
0: our drew pomerantz <laughs> all right well they didn't really have to give up an anderson espinoza for me so it, it worked out well Okay. We have a two-part podcast for you today. Later in the show, Michael and I are going to discuss whether baseball movies are having a moment. There's been an extended drought since the golden age of baseball movies, but there have been a few released already in 2016, and we just watched them. So we're going to talk about what makes a good baseball movie and whether any of the recent entries in the genre comes close to the pantheon. But first, we've got a guest who's going to tell us about all the ways in which the Pittsburgh Pirates are embracing sports science and applying technology and performance research to baseball in innovative and possibly scary ways. So we are welcoming in Travis Sawchick. Travis is the Pirates beat writer for the Pittsburgh Tribune Review and the author of Big Data Baseball, which is the story of how the Pirates got good again. And he's been making his own book outdated by reporting on all the latest experiments the Pirates have been trying. Hello, Travis. (laughs) Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. We're happy to. So your latest feature is a look at how the Pirates are trying to optimize their players' performance in any way they can. That can take many forms. It could be proper sleep habits. It could be proper training routines. In Jared Hughes's case, it's being super into foam sleep masks, which (laughs) as a connoisseur of sleep masks myself, I identify with. So I think they've ported a lot of these ideas from the NBA and the NFL, and they've also incorporated some of their own innovations. And there's a not entirely inaccurate perception that baseball players do a lot of standing around. And of course, it's not a contact sport in the way that basketball and football are. So what areas of weakness are the Pirates really trying to shore up here? What are the main sources of stress or fatigue? And how do you counteract that grind?
2: Yeah, I think they do believe in the grind. And you're right. This isn't basketball. This isn't soccer. This isn't football. There isn't free-flowing movement. There is a perception that guys are standing around. But there's been research at Baseball Perspectives that suggests plate discipline erodes over the course of a season. The Pirates believe the grind effect is real. The travel schedule is pretty brutal. A lot of games. And they're trying to find, as Todd Thompson, the Pirates head athletic trainer, said, they, they're in search of this video game like Energy Bar just like the Golden State Warriors are, just like some teams in the NFL are, and they're looking for this. They believe that they're in search of optimum efficiency, and they want players out there when they're near 100%, when they can perform at their best, and uh, this can create a more efficient performance. This can maybe reduce slumps and prolong hot periods. From shifts to uh, their ground ball philosophy to, to pitch framing, to they're looking for ways to enhance the performance efficiency of players without spending a ton of money on it and i think uh, like a lot of people doing a lot of sports that this is the medical side the health side the preventative side they're pouring a lot of money uh, brain power surveying of teams they they visited several nfl teams they visited visited the chip kelly's nfl eagles before he parted ways with the eagles they've been in contact with the golden state warriors so they've been on this hunt for better efficiency practices and That's what led to this article and some of the articles I've written about their kind of mad scientist practices with the uh, preventative side.
1: So some of the stuff that you talked about in the article is pretty non-controversial. Like, you know, you're going to perform better when you when you've slept more or uh, when you're thinking more positively. But was there anything that was revealed to you or or came up that sort of struck you as out there like you had never thought that this would be a place a baseball team might try to gain gain an advantage?
2: Yeah, no, that's a good question. And I wasn't even aware of the Omega Wave technology the Pirates are, are using. And I just talking to some players in the spring, they talked about this. They called it a machine, but this system, the Omega Wave system that uh, measures their, basically the overall functionality of their body and measures as an electrocardiogram, it measures uh, the heart rates, certain aspects of I, I, brain waves, science way above my way above my head. and I found that really interesting. And just the idea that they're trying to put a note num- in this machine gives you kind of a, a number and overall functionality that the, what the body is capable of on a given day. and that I was not aware they were employing this or that any major league teams were. So that jumped out at me that they were using this. and it was sort of on a voluntary but not voluntary basis. They really wanted players to get in there and get an idea of their uh, overall readiness and capacity. But I also, and this is a sidebar, but I also found it interesting from a player's perspective, how much information do you want to give over to a team <laughs> if you're, if a team finds out that you're easily mentally stressed or that you fatigue easily, do you really want teams to know that? But you also want to have your most optimum performance. So I found the players, from the players' perspective – what is the motivation to allow the team to have this information? I've, and that's a sidebar, but I also found that interesting. The, the pirates also meet with sleep experts and Ben mentioned the, the Jared Hughes is now wearing the, the foam eye mask and uh, that's not a new practice or that's not highly inventive or anything but it's interesting that you know they're even asking players to bring their own pillows on the road and just the de- the level of detail and the overall methodical nature of this uh is is interesting i think
0: yeah sleep masks that don't touch your eyes are definitely the new <laughs> money
2: ball but they work i mean i i use a sleep mask so do I. I and i saw a poll on her website that asked the newspaper website that asked how many men use a sleep mask at night. It was only like 25%. So there's, people should really use them because they make a big difference at night.
1: I don't use a sleep mask and that must be why I'm tired all the time.
2: (laughs) It makes a difference. It's sounder sleep. Use a sleep mask, Michael. All
0: right. Yeah, my, my sleep habits are far from optimal. I think the pirates would be disgusted with the hours that I keep. And do you have any idea sort of what goes into this daily test that's administered and you quoted Col Figueroa as calling it a very forcefully volunteered daily stress test? And I wonder, do you have any idea? There's some sort of numerical scale. So if if Michael and I are sleep deprived, which we are, then do, <laughs> what is our number on this scale? Do we get benched? Do we get scolded? Do we get a talking to from the trainer or Clint Hurdle? Or is it more of a holistic measure that goes beyond how many hours of shut eye you got last night?
2: Yeah. yeah. So I, and most of these players are in good shape, and they are taking care of care of their bodies. So a lot of the readings are good but I think of what my understanding is if there is oh, sorry about that if there is a reading that is not optimal they have nutritionists they have the training staff medical staff all sorts of people that they can counsel with and meet with and uh, develop better habits or maybe you weren't hydrating as well the last week what can? you know, you need to drink more water, or uh, did you have, is there something outside the clubhouse that's bothering you? You know, they have all sorts of people they can meet with or d- to develop different habits, and I think that's the first step. They, the training and strength staff does deliver a number associated with every player to Clint Hurdle's desk before every game that gives them an idea of their players' overall readiness to play that day and overall capacity, but Todd Tomczyk says that is just a talking point. That is not something that's a bench or play kind of binary decision point it's just a talking point and hurdle has a bunch of staff members in to talk about lineup decisions that sort of thing so i don't think there's a lot of they're not they're not reprimanding players they really just want to develop better habits that's my understanding of it they do want the magic number but they there's also this trust element where the players have to trust that the pirate staff has their best interest in mind and that's a big part of the element big part of this and the pirates really do try to develop those relationships and trust with players so they'll be comfortable using this.
0: And roughly how secretive are the pirates trying to be about this? Obviously, if, if they're trying to be, they're not succeeding all that well because you've uncovered the secrets. But I wonder just how circumspect they are about all of this. Uh, a couple of years ago when I was in Pittsburgh reporting something for a pirate's feature for Grantland, they didn't want me to talk to the doctor. They didn't want me to talk to the trainer. You obviously spoke to the trainer, but how much of this info... Came from players? Were you kind of doing an end around around the team to try to find out more about this?
2: They, uh, and that's a good question. And there's certain guys, that the trainers, they've just made available this year because I, I think Clint Hurdle was <laughs> tired of answering injury-related questions. But uh, yeah, some of it was just talking to players in the clubhouse and what's new and things just come up in conversation and becomes an interesting story. Certain staff members are off-limits. Chris Johnson, who they hired from the—he was with the Golden State Warriors and he was, with the, he was with the Navy SEALs before that. He's a sports psychologist. He's off-limits. We can't speak with him. And James Harris, who they hired from the from Chip Kelly's staff at the Philadelphia Eagles, he is not available either for for us. But so they are secretive to a degree. But it's hard to keep everything a secret. And you know, there's a lot of teams, as you mentioned earlier, that are experimenting with this, whether it's Premier League or NBA. So a lot of this is just rooted in exercise science and physiology and it's just a matter of getting everybody on the same page and pulling the rope the same way to allow teams to to utilize this it's in that sense it's no different than getting people on board with defensive shifts or things like that so yeah i I think they're trying to be secretive but i think like so much of the pirate story it's not that this is they've uncovered some secret it's just getting people to adopt and adhere to it and trust it.
1: We've sort of stepped around this this issue, but the main point of skepticism for me about all this stuff is not whether it works, but but the ethical implications mm-hmm. of asking your employees for this much data, you know, about their about their bodies, about their personal lives. Like, it, you know, I know uh, Cole Figueroa, who spoke out a little bit in your story. Did you get a little bit, or did you get any other kind of pushback of from Players saying, you know, I don't want my boss to know every little thing about my body, about my personal life. Like, there are some things that I just still want to keep private.
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, and not every player is on board with. It. Andrew McCutcheon says he does not, he, he's not part of this program. He doesn't believe he needs it, I suppose. And it also comes with a survey that they the players use before they go into the Megawave system. And it's uh, like five questions, scale of one to five. Some of them are physical. How are you feeling? Did you get enough sleep? And then some are more rooted in psychology, where uh, a common question is, is your mind cluttered or free today? And a lot of players say they don't take the survey. And the Pirates want to kind of connect the mind and body a little bit, is how they describe it. And they want players to maybe reflect a little bit with the questions and try to be as objective and honest with themselves as they can. And that's why they take the survey. But I think there is some taboo still this, uh, the psychological side of the sport and a lot of players don't take the survey I think they're skeptical of it and even Figueroa said you know players get very uneasy when teams start talking about brain waves measuring those types of things and getting more 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 and more biometric data on players and there there are players wary of that and you know I think that's within reason so there is some pushback but by and large there seems at least with the Omega wave testing there seems to be high level of usage among the players with, with that system
1: and the the survey um i thought was interesting because it reminded me something of something that uh that ben and sam miller did with uh, the sonoma stompers last year where they'd have everybody take a daily survey about their mental state but they'd lock it in a safe until the end of the season so if they're if like if your name is on the survey and the pirates are the pirates getting that data right away and if so does that sort of temper their expectation as to how honest the the players are going to be?
2: Yeah, it's daily and they receive it daily. They, the players have an iPad and they just uh, the players that are willing to engage in that just type it in daily or take the test daily. So yeah, they see those results in real time and they measure the results of the survey with the, re- the results in machine and. Uh, they have a discussion why the, the pirates believe the machine is always being honest. They, they don't believe the players honest are always able maybe to honestly self-evaluate. And as Tom's said, you know players train their bodies to go through this season of 162 games and all the travel, all the demands. And they sort of can have tunnel vision and say, this is what I need to do today. This is what I need to do today. And they don't stop and think about how they re- really feel. And I think the survey more than anything, is so they sit down and stop and think about how they really feel and what do they do the day before, why do they feel this way, whether it's good or bad. So it's, it's almost more of a daily reflection point and they, they want them to have that, that daily time to, to reflect and sit and think and make a judgment.
1: And one last, one last one, and I'll, I'll get off this. Um, but do you have any, uh, you know, I know you said Andrew McCutcheon opted out, but as far as this being the, the forcefully volunteered thing is they're uh, a, like a level of social capital or or veteran status or, or track record or performance that, you know, maybe Andrew McCutcheon, because he's Andrew McCutcheon, doesn't need to go along with this program. But, you know, Jameson Tyon does or or another rookie. You know, how is this you know how truly voluntary is this, I guess, would be the.
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, if you have uh, Andrew McCutcheon's resume, I guess the club has less uh, <laughs> can less persuade you to. Jump on board with all this. Where if you're Cole Figueroa and you're the 25th man on the the roster at the camp, you probably feel like you need to check all the boxes what the what the team is asking of you. So yeah, I think there is. This isn't every player isn't going to view this equally as as a necessity. And players who have maybe a higher level of performance probably don't believe they they need it as much. So yeah, I think it's it's as Figueroa said, it's kind of force. It's on a very forcefully voluntary basis and. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out with all the wearable technologies and teams wanting to know more and more about their players that they can measure and have an objective kind of lens with. It'll be interesting to see future CBAs and how this is negotiated and all sorts of things, but – uh, yeah, you bring up an interesting point, and I don't know if I can really give a satisfying answer, but but that's the best I can say.
0: I feel for whichever pirate staffer is tasked with collecting these surveys and using the data, because as Michael alluded to when I did that last summer, which was not for the purposes of deciding who would be in the lineup each day. It was just an information-gathering thing for our book, and even so, we noticed that as the season went on, fewer and fewer surveys were being filled out, and this was with an independent league team where these guys were not making millions of dollars and did not really have any status that would enable them not to do that, but they still didn't. So I can imagine that it's not the easiest sell in the world. So could you imagine this information being brought into, say, an arbitration hearing at some point? Because that's when it starts to get big brothery, when you imagine a team going in front of the panel of arbitrators and saying... This guy was most prepared to play only X percent of the time. He slept less than everyone on the team. He didn't spend any time in the regeneration room, so we're (laughs) going to pay him less next year. And he deserves less next year. So, is that something you could envision in the dystopian sports future?
2: Absolutely. And Mark Melanis, the Pirates closer, who's a guy very much concerned with the state of his body. He does his own. He gets his own blood work done, much the same way Jose Bautista does. He's in great physical shape. He's. It's a very important thing to him, and he's on board with all of this. But he also understands. Or one of his concerns is what happens to the next guy, where he. Believes in this, and he wants as much information about his body that he can get, and his performance, and his readiness. But what about the next guy? Maybe he is not of the same mindset or interest level. And what about him? So he's concerned about it. He wonders what the staff will do with it, and if it would be used in arbitration settings or future contract or roster decisions. So yeah, he's very much aware of it, and he says again, it comes down to trust. And he does trust the staff here; they've earned his trust. But he also wonders if it. You know, if I think he said, if uh, a trainer or a strength coach, if their job was on the line, if they had to, if the decision was, I have to give over players' information or something of that nature, then would they would they hand it over? Would they use it in, in a setting, an arbitration setting, or something similar? And yeah, who, who knows what they would do? Uh, so it's uh, it comes down to trust, as Melanson says, as Figueroa says, and uh, I think that's built up over the years. And I know as you've written about Ben, the Pirates have had a very They've lost few days of disabled list over the last several seasons. Uh, they've generally kept players healthy on the field. A lot of pitchers have come here and had great, they've been great reclamation project successes. So I think there has been a trust buildup with the staff. But yeah, uh, it'll be interesting to see if if how far away that dystopian future is.
0: And do you get the sense, not that it needs to be driven by this, but I wonder whether it is driven by this, that... Kind of the first wave of the Pirates rebuilding, as you described in your book, was founded in part on identifying underrated players from outside the organization, guys with great receiving skills behind the plate or pitchers who could become better by adding a two-seamer or throwing inside or whatever it was. And now maybe that's getting harder to do. I, I was at Sabre Seminar a couple of years ago, which is a, a big baseball nerd convention, which is coming up again in August in Boston. And Ben Charrington was talking about how, you know, every team has roughly equally accurate projection systems and they know who the good players are going to be for the most part. Obviously, guys defy those expectations. But his focus at the time was getting players to operate at the higher range or the higher end of the range of possibilities year in and year out, as he put it then. And I think probably the 2014 and 2015 Red Sox are pretty strong evidence that he didn't actually figure out how to do that. But (laughs) I wonder whether that's part of the impetus here that the Pirates feel there's less underrated talent just waiting to be taken. And so this is the way they set themselves apart.
2: Yeah, no, I think you're I think you're right and i think honey neil huntington the pirates gm admitted as much as offseason he he noted how the starting pitching market even for kind of their their past model of reclamation guys it would target the the price or the market he said blew up on them and i think it is you look at the the contracts for catchers with good receiving skills uh russell martin signed a two-year 17 million dollar deal with the pirates in 13 then he's after teachers of the pirates and the power of pitch framing becomes public and well known. and he signs a five-year, eighty-something million-dollar deal with the Blue Jays. So the price for some of their preferred models is going up. It's the projection systems you mentioned. I mean, there's not a lot of undervalued players at at this time, at least with what, what we how we know to measure performance and future performance. So they're looking elsewhere uh, for advantages and. If it's again, it's, it's an efficiency problem just with the ground ball shift marriage that they used successfully in Pittsburgh. Now they're looking at new ways to, to improve efficiency without paying for it. And they want players to be more on that optimum end of pot- potential performance. And this is uh, a frontier. It's a wide open frontier. I don't think anyone believes they have, have it figured out by any means. But I think that's exciting for the Pirates because they believe there is so much that can be mined here. There is so much – there's such potential for a big competitive advantage. It's an exciting frontier, and I think that's why we see them investigating so many other teams and other sports and studying exercise science and bringing on the best people they can find. And uh, they they believe this is a better way to – or an ideal, optimum way to spend resources. And do you have any sense of whether this would be
0: a recruiting advantage for the Pirates or a disadvantage? In in other words, would guys be telling potential future teammates, hey, come play for the Pirates because they will make you better and they will make you healthier and then you'll get paid more money? Or will players be warning everyone else, stay away. They will hook you up to machines (laughs) and make you go inside isolation tanks.
2: Right. Uh, I don't know if I could get in the isolation tank. That (laughs) I don't know. I'm a little claustrophobic, so I don't know. And if you don't know what what an isolation tank is, it's – the Pirates have two of them in their regeneration room, and they're these chambers that are filled with – it's water infused with, I think, 1,400 pounds of salt. It's heated to skin temperature. It's completely black, and players like Mark Melanson will go in there, float, relax, and there's – it can be a – you can go into a meditative state there, but it's not for everyone. But it is for players like Melanson to get to your question, and I think if you're recruit, recruiting a certain kind of player who's very interested in, in these sorts of things and getting the most out of performance, I think it is a, it is an edge. But if you're a skeptical player, if you're leery of this, if you're worried about the big brother aspect, then it's probably going to be a turnoff, uh, and the Pirates say it is essentially voluntary, but you wonder if it becomes less and less voluntary, uh, and with systems like even StatCast, systems like that, there's going to be more data produced. If there's more bio or wearable technology that comes out that players use, they're going to be able to gather more data. So maybe players will eventually find it really difficult to avoid all this. But for right now, I think it's a recruiting tool for a certain kind of athlete. And it would be a, you know, a turnoff, a negative for for another kind, to, uh, to answer your question in a very political way. <laughs>
0: And I'm curious about the response from your readers. Is it a positive response? Are people pleased that the pirates are exploring every option here? Or are you getting any of the kind of cranky responses? You know, the typical, these guys are making millions and they're taking naps in the clubhouse and they're getting more days off. Are you getting any of that?
2: Yeah, it's mixed. I mean, there's definitely the, the cranky crowd that's, that sees. I've heard, I've Got a couple emails mentioning how Cal Ripken, you know, he didn't need any of this stuff. And he played <laughs> right. every game for 20 years. So he has been noted. I've been, there's been emails about how these guys do a stand around. You know, they're being paid millions. Uh, what a silly article. So there's been that response. Other people think it's really interesting and think that teams and players should want to have as much information as they can. So kind of a, a mixed reaction from the readership. And I assume I, there's been a mixed reaction in the clubhouse too. But I do think at the end of the day, it's this sort of science and technology that does move performance forward, and it's really rooted in the Soviet—a lot of the, the Omega wave is traced back to exercise science and the uh, study of performance and physiology from der, from the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And whereas, as I understand, it, the, the Western world took a more—athletic uh, training was more of an art form. The Soviets looked at it as more of a science, and maybe from chemicals to training, they looked at it that way. But they also— there's a lot of philosophy developed there that's the bedrock of exercise science today. And the creators behind Omega Wave were scientists from the Soviet Union, so or from Russia and Ukraine, former, former states. So yeah, I think this is moving performance forward. And the Soviets' metal count was really good during the Cold, Cold War era. They made gains. So I think they're, if you look at it from that perspective, it, this does move uh, performance forward. And if you want to have a better understanding of your body and where players are, in a readiness scale, it does make sense. It can increase ultimately the number of wins and uh, rate stats of players. So, from that sense, I think player or people and players are, are open to it.
1: I don't think you address this in the the piece, and maybe they just you know didn't give you any uh, any information on this. But do you have any idea how much all this costs between personnel and and training and computers equipment? Is it the hundreds of thousands of dollars, the millions of dollars?
2: I think the actual Omega Wave system. Just doing so. I am not an expert on the make wave, but just some some research. I think it's like a seventy thousand dollar system. So it's not something the average individual can can purchase for their home gym. But I, I think it was aimed more towards Olympic style training and professional sports and Division one college right. athletic department. So I think that's what it was geared to. The price might have come down since I read that, but I do I do think it is for the individual. It's expensive for the pro organization. It's a relative you know cheap cost.
1: Right, if you're if you're paying like 8 million dollars for a win on the free agent market, the you don't have to get a lot of uh return on investment to make it worthwhile. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and again, Pirates are always looking for a way to create cheap wins like every every club and particularly every small market club. So, there's no cheaper win than getting an extra win out of your player that your projection system didn't forecast or that your scouts and player development team didn't think was there.
0: And last question, I guess, is how do you know whether it works? And maybe you don't need to know whether it works to try it. If it has worked in other sports, if there are studies that suggest it would work, maybe that's reason enough to give it a shot. But I would assume that if you are making a big investment in time and personnel and resources, you'd want to try to get some sense of whether it's actually making your baseball team better. So do you have any idea how the Pirates are trying to practice some self-assessment?
2: Yeah, Tomzik said there is self-assessment going on. Some of it is anecdotal. Some of it is data and, and fact-based, and he wasn't He wasn't nice enough to reveal all the the self-assessment findings they've found, but just looking at the Pirates' win totals over the last three years, looking at how they've generally prevented injuries pretty well, they've generally had Andrew McCutcheon's an exception this year, but they've generally had star players perform, like star players. So, I mean, it's hard to know for sure, as the author of this article from the outside, how well it's really working, but I know the Pirates believe it works to some degree, and even if it's an extra 1 or 2%, uh, that would be really valuable. So, they, this, I, I know the strength and training and medical teams are invested in this, but they do believe that it is working to, to some degree. And, uh, I know players like Melanson believe it works to some degree, and other players like McCutcheon are skeptical. So, that's about, I mean, that's what I found. It's sort of, uh, it, it's hard to pin down on the outside but they do believe there is some uh, some positive impact
0: and how futuristic looking is this regeneration room <laughs> is this more of like a minority report precog bath this is really what yeah. I want to know I'm, I'm thinking about getting one for my bathroom <laughs> is it like Battlestar Galactica like Cylon Bridge kind of decor or like Camino cloning facility what does it look like in
2: there it should look like that it's an opportunity be, yeah. uh, if players are into that that would be a great recruiting tool right and, uh, but no, I actually have not I've not been allowed to go in the regeneration room, but what I'm told exists in there are two isolation chambers, a handful of lazy boys, and two beds. So the pirates are big on rest and sleep, and they want players to go in there, sleep, rest, relax, reduce your stress and anxiety levels. And it, you know it's, I th- I'm pretty sure it's a cell phone or you know, it's a distraction-free zone. And I think the Cubs and other teams have similar. I think the Cubs built a similar room in their new clubhouse. So the Pirates aren't alone in this, but uh. Yeah, it's across it's across the hall from the clubhouse. So I, it, it's been in place three years, I believe. So it's a relatively new development. And uh, yeah, some I know some players really like it. All
0: right. Well, I've had Cole Figueroa on a podcast before, so I'm going to have to have him back on to get the inside <laughs> scoop on what the regeneration room looks yeah, like. Yeah, I'm
2: going to miss Cole because he's really he's been a, a key point man for some good stories. Right.
0: He's with the Marlins now, so he can he's free to to tell all about the Pirates operation. <laughs> All right. Well, you can read Travis in the Pittsburgh Tribune Review. You can buy his book, Big Data Baseball, and you can find him on Twitter at Sochik Trib. Travis, thank you very much. And we will discuss sleep masks some more off air.
2: (laughs) Thanks so much, guys. I enjoyed it.
0: All right, let's pause for a second to tell you about our sponsor, SeatGeek. Buying tickets online for sports and concerts has been a confusing process for a long time. I can testify to that. It's always been hard to find the best deal for that game or show you want to go to, and none of those older ticket sites wants to change that. But SeatGeek is different. They've come along and created an amazing app and website that makes it easier than ever for fans to buy and sell tickets. And so SeatGeek is always the first place I go to look for tickets to a game or concert. Everything about SeatGeek is designed to make life easier for sports and music fans. With SeatGeek, you'll. Never need to waste time checking prices on other ticket sites. SeatGeek does that for you by pulling all the tickets available on other sites into one place so you can save time and never miss a deal. And SeatGeek wants to help you get the most bang for your buck. That's why every ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on value. It's a very sabermetric approach to ticket sales. You'll immediately see any underpriced seats and be able to find the best deals that fit your budget. Market inefficiencies, people. Best of all, listeners to the Ringer MLB show get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase to get your $20 rebate on tickets, just download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code and then enter the promo code, which is RingerMLB, And then SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. So download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code RingerMLB today. All right. So we're back for our baseball movies segment. And the premise of this segment is that baseball movies are back. It's been a bleak landscape for quite some time now. And this idea was inspired by an article you wrote earlier this year for Baseball Prospectus in which you did a taxonomy of baseball movies from the last few decades. Then you lamented that it had been a while since the last entry to that canon. So could you kind of classify the golden age of baseball movies as you defined it there? What what began it? What ended it?
1: Uh Yeah, I actually just had to look it up because I don't remember anything that I write on the internet for more than... <laughs> 30 seconds. Uh it was from nineteen eighty four with the natural to two thousand two with the rookie. And this is an eighteen year span. I think there were twenty movies that I, I singled out. There were others that were released in that time, indie movies that didn't really get a big release, but it was a period where particularly in the early 90s, Disney was releasing a a movie about baseball for kids pretty much every year. Uh, Angels in the Outfield, Rookie of the Year and The Sandlot all came out in a like a one year span. And this carried on through 2002 with and generated most of Wesley Snipes' career income and Kevin Costner's career income. And I guess Wesley Snipes and Kevin Costner got old, and so they stopped making them.
0: I think you're underrating Blade's impact on Wesley Snipes' earnings.
1: Well, I'm certainly uh, not underestimating the IRS's impact on
0: (laughs) Wesley Snipes' career. Yeah, that was the problem. He underestimated his own earnings. (laughs) All right. So it's been a while then. So it's been almost 15 years since this sort of golden age ended. And not that there haven't been any good baseball movies since then. You could count Moneyball. It's not typical representative baseball movie, but it's about baseball. It's a pretty good movie. But otherwise, it's been really a a string of flops and just saccharine, cliched, stereotypical portrayals of scouts in Trouble with the Curve or, you know, Mr. 3000 or Million Dollar or just movies that really don't come anywhere close to the pantheon of Major League and Bull Durham and the movies that we cherish. So this year, there have already been three. So the rule of three applies here. We can discuss this as if it's a trend. And last year, I really don't think there was a single baseball movie. I don't think there have been any for a couple of years unless you count that one scene in Interstellar. And by the way, these are not really spoilable movies, but we will try to steer clear of anything that could be construed as a spoiler anyway. So we've had Everybody Wants Some, the Richard Linklater movie, which is set in 1980 and follows a a college baseball team in its first weekend at the school before classes start, getting to know each other, going to practice, etc., And the Phenom, which came out more recently, came out in June. This is a story of a highly touted prospect, a high school pitcher, one of the highest ranked pitchers in the country who has a difficult home life and it comes back to bite him once he makes it to the majors. And he goes through all sorts of counseling, courtesy of Paul Giamatti, to try to get back to the mound. And lastly, Undrafted, which came out a week ago, and this is uh, sort of has some elements of Everybody Wants Some. It's a story about a great college baseball player, a semi-true story about a great college baseball player who didn't get drafted, got passed over in the amateur draft, and has this last game with his buddies, which comes to take on all sorts of meaning and significance and uh, life lessons. So... I think first I will ask you, what do you think is the ideal amount of baseball in a baseball movie? Is there like a golden ratio for baseball to non-baseball in, in a baseball movie? Because it seems to me that my enjoyment of these three movies was inversely correlated with the amount of on-screen baseball. Yeah, I
1: of those three, I would say I enjoyed Everybody Wants Some the most. And I think it wound up being I enjoyed them the three movies in order of how much money it looked like it was spent on the, <laughs> that too. Uh, but, uh, but there was almost no baseball and everybody wants some. And I sort of like that, like, you know, what is this about? Well, it's not really about, you know, it's, it's about baseball players. It's not really about baseball, but on the other hand, like all the stuff off of the field about camaraderie and how college baseball is, you know, this extremely high level sport that's played by children with way too much time on their hands. I think that gets it across really well, but on the the other hand, the movie that I think is the best of the of the Golden Age movies, Little Big League, is almost entirely baseball. Right. Like it, there's very little off the field apart from the night nurses from Jersey, so. I think you could have, you know, very little baseball, almost exclusively baseball or anything in between.
0: Yeah. That's a non-answer. That's a total (laughs) non-answer to your question. Yeah, well, it depends is a fair answer to this question, I think. And I mean, it's just like if you're writing a story about baseball or if you're tweeting about baseball, you don't want it all to be play by play. Unless you've sort of established the emotional stakes and ties to the characters, so that you actually care about what's happening on the field, and I think
1: I think it depends on like the two things that really make a baseball movie are how good is the baseball, like how believable is it, and versus how um, you know how good is the drama off the field. So like Little Big League, the baseball is really good because half the the actors. In the movie, are actual Major League Baseball players, and the ones that aren't, like uh, Scott Patterson and Michael Papajohn, were were actors who started out as baseball players. So the baseball's great, whereas everybody wants some. The off-field stuff is essentially the spiritual successor to Dazed and Confused. Right. So if you know Richard Linklater is directing your movie, you want you probably want more bullshit and less baseball. Whereas if you got a bunch of big leaguers, you you want the the ratio to be reversed.
0: Yeah. Which of these three did you think was the most convincing? As As on-screen actors looking like baseball players, Uh,
1: probably everybody wants some. I thought the the most convincing baseball universe belonged to the Phenom, right? But you really only see the one guy who's, you know, Johnny Simmons playing Rick Ankeel as Chipper Jones, um, (laughs) as Todd Marinovich. So but, you know, I thought he was OK. I mean, there's the, the the obvious problem that actors tend to be short and athletes tend to be big. But mm-hmm. within those constraints, he was I thought he was fairly convincing. He had a sort of a, a Tommy Hansen hitch in his in his windup. But they I thought they did a decent job with with sort of the one man baseball story there. But everybody wants some most of the action most of the baseball action belongs to Tyler Hecklin, who uh, was a very high-level college baseball player before he went into acting, and Justin Street, who's Houston Street's younger brother who played Jay Niles. So, you know, those guys know what they're doing, for lack of a better word.
0: Yeah. And it's sort of a meandering movie, and and that's not a negative thing. It's just a—it kind of chronicles one weekend in this timeless college era where, you know, there's there's one character who says— It's going to be one of the best days of my life here until tomorrow. It's just, you know, this was not at all reflective of my college experience. These guys are just kind of kings of the campus. And I think, you know, about 80% of the movie is ball busting. It's just them competing and making fun of each other and giving each other a hard time, which I think is probably a pretty accurate representation of the college athletic experience. Right. There's one actual baseball scene in the movie, and it's not any sort of dramatic, climactic moment. It is a practice session. And our colleague Chris Ryan had Richard Linklater on the watch earlier this year, and, and they talked a bit about that and how practice was kind of, you know, their favorite part of the organized sports experience. And so it was refreshing to not really see the the typical baseball movie stakes where, you know, at the end there's a slow motion moment where in undrafted someone literally his life flashes before his eyes for roughly two minutes, (laughs) two full minutes of baseball past flashing before his eyes. And it kind of uh, has the the standard sports sort of scenes and everybody wants some did away with that. So that was refreshing.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, that one baseball scene was one of my, it was probably my favorite scene in the movie. Just, I love, I might just personally have an affinity for, for people shouting at each other, like these <laughs> long, you know, minute long tirades where just one guy yells at another guy. It might be because I watched so much Aaron Sorkin as a kid, <laughs> right. but, but yeah, I loved, I love that, uh that practice scene.
0: Yeah. And there really was a, a, Contrasts with the Phenom because I, I watch these two movies back to back and Everybody mm-hmm. Wants Some is just this ensemble cast and it's all about the relationship between these people and these players and the team aspect is just a core component of the movie and in the Phenom there essentially is no team you you almost never see the Phenom's teammates there's one scene when he's riding a bus and the camera kind of you know dollies up the aisle and you can see the rest of his teammates just faced and asleep, just, you know, not even looking like living beings. But for the rest of the movie, it's kind of, you know, long shots of the field where you can't see anyone's features and then the phenom. And it's just this very oppressive environment because it's a, a story about how this guy lost his control and threw five wild pitches in an inning and had to be demoted back to the minors and get counseling and it's just everything is against him there's always a gaggle of reporters stuffing microphones in his face the the trees in the ballparks are kind of crowding in on him in every scene and it's just a, a much much different tone than uh, everybody wants them
1: yeah i i watched them back to back the other night but i I turned on the phenom and immediately regretted making Ethan Hawke the last thing (laughs) I watched before I went to sleep. Right. And he was great. To oh, he be, to yeah. be clear, as the phenom's semi-abusive father. Yeah, the phenom I think was was very well shot and well acted. I think the the writing sort of sort of let it down. That was the but you know it's a it's an indie indie movie about baseball. I think yeah yeah even being okay was uh,
0: was a relief. Yeah, and it it explores this psychological side of the game. That I don't know. I'm trying to think of a good comp for a, a baseball movie that conveys the kind of pressure that a, a top prospect would face. I don't know whether any movie has portrayed it as faithfully as this one did yeah. it's, it's a tough watch at times but it does something admirable i think
1: yeah i don't know that there there really was a movie in the in the golden age that was that dark like even the fan, which is like literally a, a, you know, a murder movie is just sort of absurd and Tony Scotty. And this was just like very, very close in, like very claustrophobic and, and serious in a way that, that baseball movies, which are usually either explicitly comedies or sort of dramas with Durham elements to them, like sports movies usually aren't that, that
0: dark. Right. And so that was, that was interesting to explore that side of the game. Yeah. And I wanted to like, undrafted more than I did You're a big, college baseball fan. I have deep emotional ties to the independent leagues and this was about a player who's sort of poised between those two worlds and he's deciding whether to make that leap to indie ball. So I like the the premise and you know, you can tell right away that the production values are are not up to the standards of the other movies that we're talking about here, but there are elements of it I enjoyed. If you like crowd reaction shots of James Belushi, you will be thrilled by this movie. If (laughs) If you like references to M. Night Shyamalan's Unbreakable, this movie will deliver multiple times, but sort of has wild swings in tone and it kind of, it sort of straddles this line between... Satirical, almost, you know, satire, and just very earnest. And I can't really tell whether at times it's going for the satire or whether it's just sort of the kind of movie that gets satirized because it's not very artfully done.
1: Yeah, I I think the the swings in tone were the major criticism I would have because it was like it, it needed to be either that inspiring, touching, you know, the natural style, or uh, or you know, like. Disney style movie, or it could have been like Everybody Wants Some, or Bull Durham, or or Goon, uh, you know that sort of you know what it's like to to ride the bench so far away from the the big leagues. But it seemed like everybody but uh, Aaron, God, I can't pronounce his name. Uh, <laughs> I think it's Tavite, Tavite, Tavite. Yeah, Aaron Tavite, Tavite, <laughs> TV it. Um, the the guy with the really good voice from Les Mis. It seemed like he was in a uh, he was in a different movie than everybody else, and it seemed like his character was written into a, a very Different movie than everybody else was. And so it was, it was really funny at times, and but it just sort of yanked you back and forth from these 12 like kind of raunchy, very funny dudes and this very serious one guy who's going through this very simple rote life drama that's all gonna end in a, a slow-motion cutaway. So yeah, it it just needed to, to pick which rock it wanted to stand on, I guess.
0: Yeah, and it had the look of one of those Disney movies. It was bright. You know, there was no shadow in the entire movie. And there were some musical cues. It sounded almost like a explosions in the sky-esque musical yeah, that's cues the... that told you exactly what to feel at any given moment. So it had some inartful moments like that. And the fact that Aaron Teveit looks his age, which is early 30s, took me out of it a little bit because when they were talking about how unfair it was that scouts had passed him over, I wondered if maybe it was because he was about 10 years older than any other draft eligible player. (laughs) So it has that problem, which wasn't so much of an issue in everybody wants them fortunately but just kind of by coincidence Tyler Hecklin was in both of these movies he was also in undrafted looking like a young Joaquin Phoenix with a really impressive five o'clock Shadow again he didn't have as much to work with in this part I think as he did in everybody wants Some, but he handled it as capably as he could
1: yeah and I I just couldn't believe that they wasted him at pitcher I guess like that was a character they wanted him to play but he was he he actually looks like a you know a college or professional infielder way more than you know the the holy grail of unconvincing actors as baseball players is Freddie Prince Jr. and Summer Catch. But <laughs> yes. like he's like he's way on the other end of that spectrum. And he you know he just sort of looked like any other actor pitching, which you know I can't believe they they had that one asset and just sort of muted it. I mean, if, if there is a, a, a golden age of baseball movies, this is going to be unbelievable for Tyler Hecklin's career. I mean, everything that I've seen him in pretty much dating back to his, uh, his stint on seventh heaven. Like they just <laughs> shoehorned baseball
0: into his character. And I don't know what a silver age of baseball movies would look like, really. I don't know how it would distinguish itself from the golden age because it's really hard to escape the shadow of those great baseball movies. There is a great baseball movie for really every subgenre. I mean, there's great baseball movies about kids teams. There's great baseball movies about pro teams. There are great dramas. There are great comedies. So I don't know that there is that much unclaimed space in the baseball movie market. And so I'm trying to think of what hasn't been done. I think the,
1: the Golden Age movies were a lot about historical baseball and a lot about the major leagues. And we're now starting to see the stories about the edges, and you know, even uh, even Million Dollar Arm and Moneyball, which were about professional baseball, like are are about. The front office, which is where we're starting to see, or not starting to see, but we're ten years into people taking an interest in, and everybody wants some. Is about college, and the the Phenom is sort of that darker uh, psych- psychological movie that that the Golden Age didn't really give us. So I think it's different. You know, like how they're saying that they're going to make different genre movies within the Star Wars universe because. You know, we can only have narrative fiction within these expanded universes now. Right. But, you know, like Rogue One is a is supposed to be like a war movie or a, or a secret agent movie that just happens to exist within within the Star Wars universe. You could do the same thing with baseball. And I think the other thing that undrafted and everybody wants some sort of went to college ball for specific reasons. But I mean, that's just a different culture to mine. And I think the, the best piece of baseball related fiction I've encountered maybe ever was the art of fielding, which is about, mm-hmm. you know, just about college baseball. So, you know, in the, I don't know that that's particularly Suited to be adapted to a movie but you know I think that there there's more beyond the kids team and the big leagues you know as we understand baseball better we can understand what sort of fiction we can write about it I was gonna say real quick what do you have you seen the the pitch promos
0: yes the new show coming out this September why don't you set it up
1: It's a a Fox uh, drama about the first woman to play in the major leagues who's played by Kylie Bunbury, who's the daughter and sister of professional soccer players. It's about her path to the majors and her struggle to adapt to a big league clubhouse. I was was extremely skeptical. I thought it was going to be... Just absolute slapdash garbage, but apparently they've partnered with Major League Baseball to try to make it as believable as possible. I think, uh, Mark Paul Goslar, who plays her, her catcher looks dashing in his beard and, uh, Dan Laria plays the manager. And after, you know, after being raised on the Wonder Years, there's a part of me that sort of looks at Dan Laria and, and recognizes him as my own father. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's going to be a good, I, I mean, I, I think it's going to be,
0: the more, the more I watch the promos, I the more I'm convinced that it's actually going to be pretty decent. Yeah, that would be uh, something we haven't really seen. There was a league of their own, but that's that's completely different. This is not a league of their own. This is the same league. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I am <laughs> hoping that it pans out.
1: Yeah, and the other thing is, like, I don't know the last time that there was a, a successful serialized TV show about sports that lasted more than a season or two. I don't know if it's like if the budget makes it prohibitive, if you're going to try to make the the game action believable, but I don't know why there hasn't been one
0: in a while, or maybe I maybe I just can't think of it. I guess it's a tough thing to pull off, at least in baseball, because it is such a grind as we just discussed with Travis, and there are so many games, and it doesn't maybe suit the narrative arc of the yeah. TV format all that well, but you'd think there would be opportunities for miniseries now that those are becoming more common. So A 26-episode season and, and 24 <laughs> of them are, they, they won
1: or lost a game, and it doesn't really really matter a whole lot yes (laughs) and then they go to the world series
0: that was what undrafted felt like at times although i will say i appreciated the scene where hecklin tells the worst hitter on the team to strike out intentionally to avoid grounding into the double play obviously a sabermetric understanding of the relative value of strikeouts and double plays so I think we have covered this. If we are recommending these movies, I, I think we would both recommend the first two that we talked about. Everybody Wants mm-hmm. Some and The Phenom. I wouldn't say that either ascends to the Mount Rushmore of baseball movies, but... I don't know. I really liked Everybody Wants Some, but I'm also... I did like too.
1: the one The one concession I've made to living in Texas is just being completely in the tank for Richard Linklater. So yeah. <laughs> um, that might just be me.
0: I'm wondering if it's baseball enough to qualify for a baseball movie, Mount Rushmore. It's about a baseball team, of course, but the actual baseball scenes, of course, as as we've discussed, are few and far between. And I really liked it. I enjoyed it. And I thought it was interesting that the protagonist, Jake, you know, often in these movies, you'll be introduced to someone who's kind of out of his depth and out of his element. And you will identify with that character. That's kind of the way Dazed and Confused works. That's how a lot of movies work where you are introduced to this new environment as the protagonist is introduced to this new environment. And in this case, Jake is totally at home from day one and is just completely rolls with the punches and looks comfortable and is not at all out of his depth. So I had a hard time identifying with him, I guess, just because he was so smooth and so competent and so skilled at interpersonal relations. But there were enough characters on the team that I didn't really miss that element. There was yeah, there's, know, one of every type.
1: Right. There's somebody for you to latch onto. And the actor, I just, when I looked up on IMDb, uh, this morning i assume because his name was blake jenner and he was tall and handsome that he was a scion to the jenner kardashian reality television empire but apparently he's he's just some dude <laughs> who's who looks and and
0: his named like he could be so <laughs> all right so let's leave it there for today we will be back with another episode of the ringer mlb show next week thank you for listening